You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'll be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this fine spring day, well, not in my fine spring day. Do you have a fine spring day in Minnesota, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota? No, indeed. It is snowing heavily. Oh. I guess I'm sorry. I don't know. Am I sorry? Is it bad? Is it good? Yes, by April, no more snow, please. <laughs> well, uh, we are approaching 90 degrees down here, so, you know. Oh, gosh. Guess, That's terrible, too. Yeah, I guess, like, nobody has it good right now, is the, is, is the moral of the story. Unless Associate Professor of English Nathan Gilmore at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, is having a better weather day than us. How about you, Nathan? Nope, high 80s and pollen so thick that Milton would call it darkness visible. Son of a gun. Or at least yellowness visible. Yeah, pretty much. Ugh. What we're saying is, if the meteor wanted to strike the planet and kill all of human life, now would be a good time. Or Jesus coming back. You know, wh- whichever is your preferred apocalypse, I guess. And I think both of those are a bit drastic. <laughs> Oh, gentlemen, before we get into today's weird topic, uh, what is going down on the network? We've got an episode of the Sectarian Review coming on Weezer and Capitalist Realism. If you've seen Danny Anderson ranting about the album of 80s covers by Weezer, I have to think that this is the episode that's going to deal with that. And we've also got an issue of Christian Humanist Profiles uh, with Christina Bieber Lake. Michael, is that your interview? It is, yes. We talk, Her first book, uh, The Incarnational Art of Flannery O'Connor, has just been re-released, so she came on and talked about it. I'm Kind of about it. Mostly we just talked about O'Connor, because, you know, I'm sure she hasn't read that book since she wrote it 10 years ago. <laughs> More than that. I think, I think it might have been 15 years ago. That'd still be a conversation worth listening to. I look forward to that episode. Yeah, we had fun. Well, anything else, or do we need to keep going? Well, there is one other new thing, which is that we have a sponsor for this episode. Yeah, that's right. This episode is sponsored by Zondervan's new NRSV Comfort Print Bibles. And David, tell our listeners, what does that comfort print phrase mean? Well, essentially every printed Bible since the history of ever has been dealing with that that weird negotiation be, between being readable and between small being small enough for a human being to carry. <laughs> uh, the Comfort Print Bible uh, deals with readability in a new and innovative way. Basically, they've developed a font that... Uh, 
well, go go look at nrsv.net for the lineup of NRSV Comfort Print Bibles, uh, and there's actually some really interesting walkthrough the science of it. Um, this isn't the term, but think of it as ergonomic for your eyes. Sounds good. Well, our topic for today, as I said, it's an odd one, um, was uh, concocted out of discovering an, an, an interesting conjunction in the calendar. We are recording on April the 10th. Uh, yesterday was the anniversary of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, tomorrow is the feast of St. Guthlock of Croyland. And I looked at both of those two and thought, the, the, these two heroes are worth honoring. What have they got in common? And poking around a bit, I discovered that both had interesting things to say about the notion of life alone or being alone, especially uh, as a spiritual discipline or for spiritual reasons. So this is, this is, one of, this is an effort to create a conversation across centuries about uh, a topic of common interest. So, I guess we'll start with personal reflection. Beginning with you, Nathan, how much time do you spend, or would like to spend if you don't get to, alone for spiritual reasons? What do you do with that devotional alone time? And has that routine really changed over the years? I'll start with the change, because that's really where the story is. When I was a seminarian, I did attempt to start every day with prayer, for a good long while, uh, that meant getting together with some friends to uh, pray the daily office from the Book of Common Prayer. Eventually, life circumstances became what they were. People moved farther away from campus, so we couldn't really get together before class. So I, I did get in the habit of uh, spending time alone in prayer before classes started. Uh, and that really you know, persisted for a good long while into my marriage uh, until kids came along. Uh, then all of a sudden... Uh, a sleep time became quite scarce, much less alone time. Uh, and really, you know, as the kids have gotten older, I would like to spend more, you know, spiritual time alone. But honestly, when I do get time alone, I often spend it reading a book, trying to get in some exercise, doing those sorts of things that, uh, you know, frankly, I probably don't do enough of. Uh, so when I do get some time and I, or really when I make some time, uh, to pray alone, uh, a lot of times it'll be, as I said, uh, back in January, I believe, I'll accompany it with, you know, some readings from, from the patristics, uh, I'll accompany it with, you know, a, a book of the Bible that I'm reading, uh, but it's certainly not in the volume, uh, that it used to be, and even back then, I mean, it was never a, uh, go out in the wilderness for 40 days kind of thing, it was more along the lines of half an hour here, half an hour there, just kind of when I can, slip away. So when I read these, uh, you know, stories of the great saints of the church of old, you know, St. Anthony, St. Guthlock, so on and so forth, uh, it's a way of life that I, I can appreciate, literarily. Uh, it's a way of life that I can, you know, say that I understand the good that can come of it. Uh, but it is the one, it is a way of life that I have experienced at second hand rather than at first hand. Uh, Michael, how about you? What's, what's your alone time? Well, I get up early in the morning, uh, during the week to work on things that aren't school related. So I, I read and I 
write things that don't have anything to do with my classes. And before I start, I pray the Breviary's Office of Readings. So that's three psalms, and there's a lengthy Old Testament or New Testament reading, and then there's a sermon or a text from the church fathers. I'm going to write or read for an hour or so. And then after I'm done, I pray the morning office, which is three psalms and then a very brief reading, like two verses, an intercessory prayer, and there's a gospel canticle and the Lord's Prayer, so things like that. And I've been doing that for about a year. I have never really been good at doing anything like this, uh, but the structure of using the breviary instead of having to come up with my own program, I have found really, really helpful. That's cool. And also kind of encouraging. Um, my story is of, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just projecting, but maybe maybe there are other people who this is their experience to, you know, write in so that you can say it me, is of frequent and periodic good intentions that uh, persist through very few iterations. <laughs> That makes me feel better, David, because I think of you as being the spiritual one. Really? That's frightening to me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I frequently, I think, this is what I'm going to do now. Uh, and being able to, in a disciplined way, consistently um, be alone, um, pray, read, has has been difficult for me my, my, my whole life. Um, now, my consistent prayer time is is when I get up in the morning as I am, uh, as I am preparing for the day. Um, I try to I try to make sure that before I get out of bed, um, I pray. And then uh, I try to listen to something that is not uh, not connected to my day. Usually an audio book. Um, right now I've got, you know, uh, I've got some sermons of Leo the Great that I'm working back through on my MP3 player, and that's that's my drive-in. Or if I don't have any, sometimes I just don't turn on anything at all and just drive in the quiet. Um, and that's really the only quiet I've got. You know, I have four kids. The oldest is not quite yet seven um, there's not, there's just not a lot of quiet or solitude to be had at my house. Um, I go to the bathroom and hide. Um, so, yeah. This was, this was an interesting, uh, an interesting episode for me to prepare for, too. Well, Michael, long ago, we did an episode on asceticism, uh, that talked through the roots of Christian monasticism and such. Uh, we won't replay that here, dear listener. You can go back through, uh, go back through the archives and find it, and you know maybe we'll even, you know, maybe we would say even some of that stuff still. Um, it was a, I think we might have still been in double digits then. Uh, I was living in Florida, so it must have been the first year of the podcast, or maybe the first two years. Wow. Well, any event. Uh, if you could just sketch out briefly, what are some of the biblical models for being alone? And then later we can pick up um, models from early Christian hermits. Just what kinds of models do we need to have in mind to make sense of this 
Old English poem, Guthluck A. Sure. So Guthluck goes off into the wilderness, which is presented in that poem as a land where demons dwell. And it's kind of set aside for demons to dwell, but also apparently it is a land for holiness. So you, you get probably back to the beginning of human civilization and ambivalence about the relationship of civilization and wilderness. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in Guthluck, it's both of those things at once. And, and in fact, I think there's there's an important sense in which that same ambivalence is present in the Bible. So uh, I'll give you a few examples. After Elijah triumphs over the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven in that very famous section is at First Kings, he goes off uh, into the wilderness. He goes into a cave and, you know, there's a thunderstorm and a tornado and all this stuff. And finally... Um, he hears the still small voice, which is God. And that phrase still sometimes used to describe God. And so silence and solitude are a big part of how he can even hear God in that situation. Uh, the wilderness also is the home of John the Baptist, whose escape from civilization seems to be part of a project of purification. He eats locusts and wild honey. He avoids wine. It's very much like the Nazarites of the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, He's kept pure from the world to some extent by being out in the wilderness. Jesus, of course, is tempted in the desert for 40 days at the start of his ministry. And there, the wilderness doesn't so much purify him as it tests his purity. And I, in some ways, I think Guthluck is the closest to Jesus in that sense. Uh, Jesus also seeks solitude a number of times in the Gospels, not just in the wilderness. Uh, most notably, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion, he's alone. But those solitudes are, are very temporary. Uh, the disciples come with him to the garden, and he seems to expect them to join him in his prayer, even though they fall asleep and don't manage to do so. Other times it talks about him waking up before everybody else and going off to pray. So he seems to, he seems to have sought solitude in that sense. And one more example, St. John is said to have been exiled to the island of Patmos. So he had a kind of solitude that was imposed on him rather than being one chosen for spiritual purposes. And yet, if he is indeed the author of the book of Revelation, uh, it seems to have worked out spiritually for him or not, depending on how frightening you find that book. <laughs> uh, I don't know enough about the hermits to give a good answer to that. So I'm going to let Nathan fill in those gaps plus whatever I left out of the Bible. Sure, there's a sense... Uh really pretty early in the Christian tradition that uh, the wilderness is both a place of retreat, uh, as in Jesus going off alone, and also a home of demons. Uh, and those two things, interestingly enough, I mean, intersect in a lot of places in, in early Christian literature. We see some mention of both of those in the life of St. Anthony. We see a ton of it uh, in the work called the Philokalia, an early spiritual manual, uh, that, you know, encourages solitude and says solitude is where the demons live and where you're going to have to do combat with demons. So mm -hmm. it, it's interesting. I mean, in one sense, uh, the notion that, uh, that being alone uh, is a complete vacuum isn't really part of the story here. Uh, to, be, to be in a place where there are not other human beings, I'll put it this way, simply means that you become more able to see everything else that was already around you. And I think that's an interesting dynamic in those early uh, Christian spiritual writings, uh, because the assumption seems to be, uh, and here I'm thinking of the, uh, one of the Elisha 
narratives in Second Kings, uh, you know, that there are spiritual beings around us constantly and that there are moments of revelation in which we can see them, like the, the hills filled with chariots of flames or however it's properly translated. Uh, the same sort of dynamic seems to be going on in those stories. Uh, and David, I mean, you know, you got, you know, dozens, perhaps hundreds of stories of, you know, deserts and wilderness and demons and all kinds of groovy things between the Bible and Guthlock. Are, are there one or two that you'd want to highlight for our listeners? Well, what, one other uh, comparison from from just this period, Guthlock is, uh, is an, an English saint, an Anglo-Saxon uh, saint from the, uh, you know, born born towards the end of the 7th century, um, going off into the wilderness in the 8th century, um, and then, uh, and then passing away, um, uh, fairly, fairly young, um, 673 to 714, um, is not, is not very old, but, uh, his, I, I guess one 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 difference is that his his desert is not a desert. It's not an arid place. It's actually more of a wetlands. Um, the the area around uh, Croyland where he where he went off into the into the wilderness was was more of a more of of a a fin <laughs> more of a right. Wetland. But it, but it is desert in the sense of a deserted place. Yes, exactly. Um, but in, ter- in terms of in terms of comparisons, I I think of uh, Saint Cuthbert, um, another Anglo-Saxon saint, and one that um, Bede tells us more about uh, than Guthlock, who uh, lived on his own uh, for a long time in a hermitage, but then was uh, was like like Guthlock drafted into um, drafted into being uh, into being an abbot. Um, uh, and well, Guthlock was associated with a monastery earlier in his life. Croyland or and, and Cuthbert is called back into monasticism, so it's not as if there's some kind of pure call. You know, you you either do one or the other. Both Guthlock and and Cuthbert, um, at at some point in their career, are in community, and at some part point in their career, are hermits. Um, and I don't know of any stories of of uh, Cuthbert fighting with demons directly but there is a story if i remember if i'm if i'm remembering it rightly i'd have to trace down the the uh the reference but uh, i believe there's a story in bead uh either bead or one of his other works in which cuthbert goes to this deserted island for his hermitage which is inhabited by uh by dark spirits and they immediately have to leave as soon as he moves in so uh, again, that that kind of trope was one that, um, I mean, y'all y- y- y'all have traced how the desert is the place where you go to wrestle with the devil, uh, or with devils, um, but that trope was certainly one that that uh, continued uh, in in these Anglo-Saxon saint li- saints' lives. Right, right. And one part that I skipped, David, is that the word hermit itself is is derived from the Greek word "arum" for a wasteland or a you know a desert. Uh, and, you know, the Aramite or the person of the wasteland is, you know, what becomes the modern English word hermit. 
Nice. Can so we, it's... before we move on, can we talk about the stylites? David can. Yeah, um, stylites were a class of of hermits who didn't just go out, they also went up. <laughs> this is the most amazing thing ever. Like, this is top five crazy Christian history things. Yeah, the... <laughs> The one, the one whose 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 name you'll you'll find most associated with it is uh, Simon or Simeon, uh, the stylite. Um, basically, I, I imagine this is something that you could only really manage in um, in and around Egypt, or maybe some areas in Greece now. But but at that time in Egypt, then as now, there were ruins in the desert, and so some of these hermits would go out into this wasteland and find old pillars, old columns from the remainders of, I don't know, temples or palaces or whatever that Egyptians had built back in a day. And they just climb to the top of it and live there. <laughs> um, and uh, people would come and bring them food. And I always wondered, where do they go to the bathroom? Did they just sort of... I don't know. I, I, I really I don't want to think too much about that. But uh, it, it was just go if for those who, who for, for whom going out in the desert was not hardcore enough. <laughs> there were the stylites, the uh, the the extreme hermits. Wouldn't you say it's a little like living on a billboard? <laughs> Maybe a bit like that or like, uh, oh, gosh, when was it? it was like the 50s or when was it that people would do flagpole sitting? It's the twenties. Twenties, okay, yeah, it's it's that kind of it's that sort of situation. You wonder um, you wonder how how much of a spiritual discipline can be when you require somebody to bring you food. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe it's like Walden. Well, yeah, yeah, he, that's that's true. He's a hypocrite in Walden too. <laughs> uh, who is it? Uh, mm. Is it Tennyson or Browning that wrote a dramatic monologue as St. Simon the Stylite? I do, I do not, not know. know. All right. Well, one or the other of them does. <laughs> you sure it wasn't uh, Longfellow? No, pr- pretty pretty sure it wasn't Longfellow. It wasn't Whitman either. <laughs> Good callback. Go back, yeah, go it, back it and was listen Tennyson. to our Christmas episode if that doesn't make sense. Yeah, uh it was uh it was Alfred Lord Tennyson. Yeah. That's that's an interesting one to look at. Someone needs to write a Broadway musical about Simon Stylite. Yeah. Uh the Tennyson poem is interesting and worth bringing up here in terms of thematically because one of the things that si- uh, or Simeon as he has he has it in the title one of the things that that he wrestles with in this dramatic monologue is why are people coming here to get advice from me? I came here to wrestle with my sin because I'm a sinner. And that is very often, um, if you read uh, the Desert Fathers, uh, like uh, Anthony and others, um, the reading the sayings of the Desert Fathers, it's very much uh, there's there's very much this. Um, kind of ethos of self-deprecation and humility because they're going into the desert because they want to wrestle with their sin. Um, it's kind of a life of continued repentance. Um, it, Luther's, the, 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 the first of the 95 theses is, is basically the, the thesis of, 
the Desert Father, which is the Christian life is one of continual repentance. I suppose we should say something a little bit more about Guthlock, but Guthlock A uh, is, uh, is an Old English poem. Um, there are two of these, Guthlock A and Guthlock B. Uh, they are both from uh, a collection of Old English poems called the Exeter Book. We only have one copy of these poems. Uh, and they present, Guthlock A presents uh, Guthlock as a, a hermit who goes out into the wilderness and has these, these confrontations or wrestlings with devils. Um, Guthlock B is a heroic Old English poetic version of the narrative of his death, and both of them are riffing off of a Latin life of uh, of Guthlock uh, by one of his followers, Felix of Croyland. Um, so, in terms in terms of the stories, you 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 pretty much know the story now, um, but. Uh, the the embellishments in terms of the ideas it's very much like the desert fathers and the patterns that we've been talking about it but the embellishments of it Guthlock is a man of his time and the poet is also a man of his time as well and so this is very much an Anglo-Saxon version of soldiers as of hermits as soldiers of Christ so Nathan what are some of these old Germanic heroic trappings that our poet dresses his hermit in. What I found interesting about this is that uh, it, it really reads kind of as a, uh, as you said, a Northern European warrior poem or Anglo-Saxon soldier poem uh, of something akin to the book of Revelation. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, Guthlock, first of all, is portrayed as someone who, quote, loved many perilous things, end quote, uh, but the perilous thing is largely going out and living uh, on a hill. Now, the problem, of course, of uh, living on a hill in the heath is that you get the evil spirits that come along. Uh, and what's interesting about the way the poem presents them is that it is a series of formal boasts. Uh, if you're familiar with Beowulf, uh, perhaps you had a professor who could tell you a few of the uh, Old English words. Uh, there's a verb, uh, mafaloda, he spoke formally or he boasted formally, uh, yeah. are some of the translations you could use there. And that's really what uh, constitutes a lot of the text of Guthlock A. Uh, the devils will arrive and they will, you know, issue a boast uh, or really a threatening speech that, you know, the, the great and the many sins of Guthlock uh, mean that he is no longer God's chosen and they will drive him forth. And then Guthlock will, will uh, respond uh, with a formal boast of his own, but it is a boast in Christ. And the reason yeah. it reminds me of Revelation is because if you look at uh, the narrative structure of Revelation, uh, the way that I tend to teach that book is it's a series of grand battles that never happen. Uh, over and over in Revelation, you get grand armies of the Lamb lined up against grand armies of the beast or grand armies of the dragon lined up against grand armies of the Lord, so on and so forth. And every time the armies are lined up, they're ready to charge forth into battle, an angel shows up and says, all right, fight's over, God wins. Uh, you never actually get any battles narrated in the book of Revelation. It's, uh, you know, if you're expecting Armageddon to be a battle, 
uh, the last book of the New Testament will be a disappointment. And a similar thing is going on here. I mean, you know, the uh, the narrative builds up over and over to, uh, you know, what looks like it's going to be a grand confrontation, uh, whether with swords or with, you know, force of will or whatever else. But each time, uh, some agent, whether it be a, a angelic spirit or something else, shows up to say that Guthlock has, in fact, been declared the favored one of God, and therefore the devils have to leave. So it's a, it's a fascinating poem in that, you know, it, uh, it features these, you know, formal warrior speeches and it even features, and I, I didn't notice this till my second read through, uh, a very Anglo-Saxon sounding warrior proverb. Uh, this is around line 345. Uh, a warrior must always so fight for God in his heart and constantly dispose his spirit to enmity against him who will be vigilant, pardon me over every soul as when he may ensnare it. Uh, so again, if you're That's familiar awesome. with Anglo-Saxon literature, I mean, this is a very common kind of a proverb. There are proverbs about warriors. There are proverbs about human beings in general. There are even proverbs about how dragons should behave. Uh, and, you know, in this one, it is a proverb about what the demon combating hermit should do. So th those are some of the high points, David. I mean, what other parts... Uh, of the Anglo-Saxon poetic tradition, would you want to highlight? I really love your your setting this. The that's that's uh, sort of competitive boasting um, alongside of Revelation. I that that I had not made that connection because um, I was doing the more, I guess probably the more conventional one of here of hearing Beowulf. Uh, especially in the kind of the duel of boasts or uh, what's often termed a flighting, you know, sort of a glorified insult battle um, between Beowulf and uh, Unferth in, uh, in sort of the first third of Beowulf. Um, uh, I, th I find it really fascinating the way this poem takes the notion of the, de the demons, the devils, as accusers of the brethren and then runs it through that that heroic vein so that it becomes warriors taunting one another. <laughs> but then unlike Beowulf, no one gets his arm ripped off. No, no one gets his arm ripped off. Though um, Guthlock does, uh, uh, a, bit, a bit after two, uh, line 296, he does make a formal boast that's almost exactly like Beowulf's. Um, I do not intend to carry against you a sword, a weapon of the world with hand enraged. Um, you know, he, he like Beowulf forswears the use of a weapon, uh, but then does not fall back on wrestling. <laughs> David, is that a purposeful echo on one side or the other? I don't know. Um, the They don't come from the same manuscript. There's only one copy of each. And uh, while it might be a little easier to date um, at least the events of Guthlock, um, the uh, Beowulf itself has been notoriously difficult to locate in terms of time and place within the centuries that we would call Anglo-Saxon England. So um, it's, it's possible, uh, and I would like to think that we, there might be some of these valences spilling over in one way 
I mean, I definitely think we have a poet who thinks of heroism and soldiering um, in a very traditional English way. But whether it's possible that the Beowulf poet is also thinking of, of, of heroing in a saintly way, that's kind of a tantalizing possibility, whether the, whether the flow might go the other way, too. Well, that's what my second doctorate will be. <laughs> um, now, one thing that is interesting, uh, there is something of a connection between them, and it's not between the poems and Beowulf, it's between the Latin life of Guthlock and Beowulf. Those are the only two texts that we have from the Anglo-Saxon period that speak of demons as descendants of Cain. So it's kind of a, an interesting an interesting connection between the opponents. Um, but as I said, it doesn't come out, it, that, that connection is not made in the poems. It's between the Latin prose life of Guthlock and Beowulf that make those connections. The poems don't. But still, the, the notion of, of kind of wild devils haunting the wilderness is, that's, that's very Beowulfy too. So, yeah. Um, I, 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 I really love Guthlock a lot. And when Bartholomew crashes the, the poem towards the end, um, that, that to me is, is one of my favorite non sequiturs in, uh, in any saint's life. Um, if, if, if some heavenly being is going to crash into the middle of your duel with the devil, um, that's not really the guy I expected it to be. <laughs> but, Apparently, Bartholomew um, was, at the time, particularly associated with this kind of intervention. So, uh, that that's another dissertation that somebody needs to do. Devote themselves to St. Bartholomew. Yes, and figure out why it is that he's, he's the patron saint of rescuing you from the devil. Well, Michael, I tried to think of an elegant segue between St. Guthlock and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but uh, I decided to let you do that instead. <laughs> so what is the setting and the occasion of uh, life together, uh, This uh, the work that we read uh, by Bonhoeffer? Um, what stands out in his world that you could set alongside Guthlock's world, either by way of connection or by way of contrast well i don't really know the circumstances of guthlock's life but i suspect they're not as dire as bonhoeffer's life together is written during a time of persecution for the confessing church in germany and the confessing church is um the the protestant religious resistance to nazism so a lot of the churches kowtow to nazism and add an Aryan clause in there in their uh, statements of faith, the confessing church refuses to do that, and they are persecuted for it, as you might imagine. Bonhoeffer had left Germany for England and the United States once the persecution began, but he returned in 1935, and his license to teach was taken from him in 1937. And at this point, he begins to work in what's called the underground seminaries, training pastors to be members and leaders of the confessing church. 
that sort of underground work made him think a lot about community and life together is the result of that. And it's for that reason, it's a little bit funny that that book often gets used as a first year text at Christian colleges because the sort of community he's talking about is much more desperate than your hall devotions are, you know, or maybe not. I mean, maybe, maybe hall devotions, <laughs> maybe hall devotions can get kind of desperate too. But I think, I think the most significant difference here is that life together, as the title suggests, is built out of community and a, and a kind of enforced community in a lot of ways. And so this section, this chapter on uh, solitude is really about escaping or not escaping, but um, stepping away from that community for a short period and then returning. So he doesn't wander off into the fins like Guthlock and just never come back. No. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's unknown to, to Bonhoeffer, apparently. I think it was probably easier to be a hermit in whenever this is, 8th century, than it was in, in 1937. There's That's more fair. wasteland at any rate. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the problem in Germany is not wasteland, but, you know. Laying the land to waste. Yeah. Well, Nathan, uh, this little chapter begins uh, with a couple of maxims. Yeah, you 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 were bringing up the old English maxims before. Now now we'll have some some others. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. So how do these two axia frame the nature of the individual and the community, and the relationship between them in this chapter? Well, in Bonhoeffer's moment, uh, the reality is that being part of the confessing church is something fundamentally different from simply identifying as, as Protestant, Catholic, something like that, uh, because it really is a, a commitment to a way of life that could get you killed. Uh, you know, people often quote uh, the first line of, I believe it is the cost of discipleship, I should have looked this up, that says to follow Christ is to die. In this moment, that is very, very literal. Uh, to be part of this community uh, means that you stand against uh, often family, certain, certainly community, and by definition against nation. And so the, the solitude of it uh, is right there at the point of entry. To enter into this community is to enter as one alone. And, and Bonhoeffer connects this to uh, you know, certain what I what I read as existentialist thoughts that one's death is always something that one approaches alone. Uh, one's standing before the ultimate is always alone. And that's one pole of this dialectic. I mean, the other pole of that dialectic is that to enter in is to enter into a life of holiness. And he notes that those people who uh, live in sort of perpetual uh, loneliness uh, do so not as Christians, but as self-indulgent, but as tourists of a sort. Uh, so it's interesting that, you know, as we were saying, you know, wastelands are harder to find, uh, in 1937 than they are in 837. And it's also the case, as Bonhoeffer frames it, uh, that those who would simply travel out so that they don't have to be around people, 
uh, aren't in that moment really living uh, a life of Christian solitude so much as a life of solipsistic solitude. So it's interesting, like I said, I mean, yeah, I can definitely read in this a sort of existentialist suspicion of abstract form uh, to say that, you know, the life of solitude is inherently better or to say that the life uh, in a community is better is to privilege a sort of, you know, uh, abstract and secondary uh, form over the content, which is the holiness of Christ. Uh, to live for Bonhoeffer is to live a life uh, that, dedicates everything that you are and everything that you have uh, to the to following a holy God. And therefore, it's going to require, as a secondary matter, both solitude and community. Uh, so I, I would say both that, uh, you know, there's a suspicion of abstract form and then also the necessity of abstract form, but always as something subordinate to uh, the ultimate concern, which is holiness. Uh, what what else is there going on here, Michael? Because I, as I read this, I mean, I, I remembered your conversations and mine about different, you know, twentieth century existentialist figures. Am I missing anything here? Um, I I thought a little bit about Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who takes real issue with the kind of Cartesian assumption that we begin as these minds and then, you know, we begin as an individual and then are kind of added to society. Because for Bonhoeffer, there really isn't any means of being alone because by virtue of being a Christian, you belong to this group uh, yeah. that's always there. It's the essential nature of our existence. And Merleau-Ponty talks about this as well. He says that you don't think, therefore you are. The first thing, your first real encounter with the world is the smile of your mother. And I, I think I think that Bonhoeffer is saying something here that rhymes with that. That our first, our first approach to the world is not as an isolated individual, but as a member of this group that sometimes you step away from, but you're never really stepping away from. Hmm. What do you think of the the first when he's dealing with the first one? Let him who cannot be alone uh, beware of community. He then goes on to talk about uh, alone. You stood before God when He called you. Alone, you had to answer that call. Alone, you had to struggle and play uh, and pray. Alone, you will die and give an account to God. You cannot escape from yourself, for God has singled you out. Um, if you are inescapably called with a community and in a community, why is he? Why is he still? shoving this kind of individuality and aloneness um why why is he making that so important still because it's dialectical right i mean he says it i'm i'm trying to find it yeah so this is the page 77 of the edition we used you are not alone even in death and on the last day you will be only one member of the great congregation of jesus christ so yeah you face it alone but you're also not alone it's yeah. it's it's this this mystical sense I guess where you're always both an individual and a member of this group. 
Yeah. And Michael, that's really what reminded me of being in time, that sort of paradox between the thrownness of human existence. We are only ever projected onto a world that's already there, but then also the, uh, you know, death as the own most, oh, and I can't even remember all those Heideggerian phrases. Do you, do you have them at hand? No, I do not. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. I, I, I death and I, any noun that I'm going to use is going to be one that Heidegger says you can't use. So I'm just going to sin boldly here. Uh, but, you know, he talks about death as the own most reality. So in other words, there is uh, nothing about your own death that you share with anyone else. And yet the shape of your death is something that you are projected onto as light is projected onto a jagged surface. Uh, the light doesn't have a form of its own, but it can only take the form of whatever world you are projected onto. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, like I said earlier, I mean, this is what it reminds me of is, is that paradox within, uh, you know, 20th century, you know, phenomenological thought. If you want to call it existentialist, that's fine. Uh, but that you are simultaneously uh, always taking the form of the world that you are projected onto and you are also... Uh, responsible for the shape of your life uh, without recourse to blaming it on someone else. Or so finding it in relationship to others that there's simply nothing left of you to consider when you are by yourself. Seems to be one of his fears too. Um, the, 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 the fear of who you are by yourself so that you so that you never want to be alone what's that uh there's a, a famous pascal bon mot about that all, all the problems of the world come from man's inability to sit in a room by himself <laughs> it's something like that i can never find it when i look for it so it's probably wrong but pascal said something yeah. like that i have uh i have a colleague who in one of his classes offered his students uh, as an extra credit assignment to once a week sit in one place and not look at their phone or look at anything or listen to anything just do nothing by yourself for I think it was something like an hour or maybe even 30 minutes it was not a long period of time and then after that just write a paragraph about the experience and he would have a lot of people take him up on it. And then after doing it two times, um, the paragraph they turned in was some variation of, this is the worst thing, and it is not worth it for extra credit. I give up. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it, would you? That sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't know. Um... Sometimes I just sit and do nothing, but, you know, I, I, I don't know for maybe, maybe as, as someone whose life is, is, is continually defined by consistent, constant interruption. Um, yeah, that's kind of my thought is, uh, you know, if I had that, uh, appeal to authority, uh, sorry, kids can't deal with you right now. I'm on my hour. Have to take my hour. <laughs> you just need to go to Eucharist, yeah. Eucharistic Adoration. 
Well, that wouldn't be doing nothing, would it? No, that's true. But I, I, I'm thinking about Simone Weil's concept of attention, which mm, um, say more words. Yeah, well, we did this episode on it years ago, but I'm, I'm rereading, I'm rereading Weil for a profiles interview, and when she talks about attention, which she equates with prayer, right at the beginning of on the right use of school studies, she, she treats attention as openness to the thing. So it's a, it's a kind of waiting semi-passivity. So I, actually, I think sitting alone in a room is paying attention. It's not non-directional. You're just listening to God or your heart or whatever, you know. You're paying attention to something. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, my, you know I, I don't want to sit around with my mind just like a complete blank. Um, because I can't. I've I have I have never I have never been able to be conscious and not thinking. <laughs> I mean, and the, the the word we haven't really used yet is meditation, right? And I mean, I know Bonhoeffer uses that word, but he's using it in a very different way than that than the way that word typically gets used, where you turn off your mind, man. Yeah. Sounds horrible. I I just I I can't imagine doing that. Which maybe maybe means I should try it. I don't know. <laughs> my therapist once, years ago in graduate school, once told me that my assignment was to come home from work and sit for five minutes without reading anything or listening to anything or doing anything. It was real hard. Um, and I, that's so interesting. I, just I cannot imagine doing it for an hour. And that's interesting because, I mean, when on occasion I, I have opportunity to meditate and, I mean, it is more of the focus on my breathing and focus on those sorts of things, you know, usually I can I can squirrel away five or ten minutes and I think it's glorious. But kind of like what David said, I mean, you know, between uh, kids and students and everything else, I mean, just stepping away from interruption is kind of a nice change. Yeah. I mean, there would be time, there would be entire weekends uh, during, during graduate school, uh, especially, especially uh, in Athens, when I was living with myself and, and when I was single, there would be entire weekends when I would not speak a word from a, to another human person from the time of my last class on Friday to the time I went to church on Sunday morning. And that was interesting. And there, there were some Saturdays when I would suddenly be aware of the fact that I had not spoken to anyone. And there was almost a kind of pleasure in it. I almost became reluctant to talk to someone because I wanted to keep the streak up. <laughs> it is kind of nice. I, I go to a monastery sometimes to write and I, I will frequently go all weekend without talking to anybody. But I also don't sit in silence. Um, I I write or I listen to music or whatever. So it, it's it's still not really the sort of meditation we're talking about. But it is kind of nice not talking to people. <laughs> it, it, enjoy my own silence, right? Even if even if not complete total silence. Well, uh, there are disciplines described in this in this chapter um 
and much of what uh, much of what he de uh, he describes in here meditation prayer intercession um, things we've already kind of nodded towards uh, those are things that I taught growing I was taught growing up as uh, ingredients of a proper evangelical quiet time put quotes around that um, this, the, the thing that I felt guilty about for years and still feel kind of guilty about for not having a regular one. To the um, point where that phrase kind of makes my stomach turn. Yeah, it's kind of the... <gasps> uh, Do you know what Catholics I, say instead? No. Ho what? Holy hour. Which to me is even more terrifying. It has to be an hour? <laughs> It also makes me think of entering, like, you know, the sacred precincts of the temple that if you go in and burn the wrong incense, you just get, you know, incinerated with defined fire. Yeah, I'd prefer that not happen. <laughs> well, Bonhoeffer, uh, he starts by insisting first on the quietness itself, which was really interesting to me. Like, quiet time, I'd never really parse through, like, why is it quiet? Um, but he really insists on the quietness. So what is this silence for, Michael? And how does he see these other disciplines in some, in some way flowing out of the silence? Right. So the, the, the solitude requires silence, and that's very difficult because he says we live in a very talkative age, and so you have to cultivate silence. And I will suggest, I think without much argument, that 2019 is even more talkative than 1937 was. I, I could be wrong, but I suspect... Uh, nah. I suspect our era is talkative in ways he could not even have imagined. So you have to cultivate silence. It's not going to come easy. Um, and he recommends that you have it at the beginning and the end of each day. So you wake up in silence and you go to sleep in silence. And there again, I think of monasticism. Uh, I, I think about how at many monasteries, monks are not allowed to speak after the compline. Uh, prayers are over. So I, I think he's fitting in with that tradition. Uh Silence happens, he says, before and after hearing the word. He uses the capital W. I think he's talking about primarily about Bible reading, which is what he uses the word meditation to mean. Mm -hmm. But he could also be talking about the, the kind of personal uh, contact with God that some Christians believe they have when they meditate or sit silently. Uh, so the, the version of scripture reading he seems to be talking about is something akin to uh, Lectio Divina, where you take a short text of scripture and you read it slowly and you think about what it has to say to you as an individual. You, you kind of block out what it might say to other people or uh, what it might mean if properly interpreted, but you're, you're taking it for what it says to us, to you, as an individual and you may or may not even go through the whole passage because a single word might stick out to you. And there, there too, I read this and I thought, man, uh, Bonhoeffer is much more spiritual than I am. Because uh, when I've done things like that, I want to get to the end of the passage as soon as I can so I don't have to keep doing it. Uh, but he's, <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile he's, he's fixating on the word cross and not even getting to the end of the sentence. Um, he, I need, yeah, I need at least a whole clause, right? I, I would think so. But so... so if you think about how much silence that requires, um, and, and we're, we're kind of back to Vey's notion of attention, that you're just parking on this one phrase or one word or one short passage, and you're allowing it to speak to you. But you can't do that if you're always trying to answer back. 
so I, I think that's where silence comes from in meditation. And then prayer and intercession, which I'm, I'm not sure I understand the difference, except that intercessory prayer is a type of prayer. Both of those require silence because those two are forms of attention. You're always listening as much as you're talking. And he, he says your mind is going to wander when you pray. And the only solution for that is just to pray for the things that your mind wanders to. And that's not silence exactly, but it's allowing, um, it's, it's not allowing your wandering mind to control things, if that makes sense. Hmm. I wondered whether it was also kind of almost like a listening to yourself. It's a listening to whatever's speaking, that's for sure. But if it's listening to yourself, it's got to be a deeper self than the kind of mile-a-minute thoughts going through your head. Yeah. It's it's almost like in praying for those things as you think about them, you're burning them off so you can get to whatever's deeper. Hmm. That's interesting. And then intercession is... It is a particular type of prayer, but it is it is prayer for others? Yes, and he, he talks about it as bringing other people into God's presence. And he says it's impossible to, to hate somebody if you're, if you're praying for them. And for that reason, community depends entirely on intercessory prayer. Because otherwise you're all going to hate each other. Can you imagine how tense it must have been in those underground seminaries and how easy it must have been to seize on something annoying? another person's doing so intercessory prayer becomes very important this is perennial um one of the consistent there are a number of consistent themes in monastic rules and one of the consistent themes is how brothers and how abbots as authorities over brothers um are to deal with interpersonal rivalries and friction. And in a community that's based around a whole bunch of people choosing to live by a rule and not talk all day, and like half the rule is about how to break up fights. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's, so the, that's the thing that jumps out at you, isn't it? Like there, there's just things that they shouldn't have to think about because they're too spiritual. But in some way, it's, it's, it's almost as if being in community that way focuses it and distills it. Um, yeah. What did, what did you think about uh, the discussion of these disciplines, Nathan? I'll tell you what, the part that uh, really jumped out at me was uh, early in the, uh, I believe, the meditation section. Yeah, that's the one it was. Uh, where he says that when you read, uh, and Michael talked about this, but... Uh, not thinking about what this text has to say to other people, but then he expands on that, saying, for the preacher, this means that he will not ask how he is going to preach or teach this text, but what it is saying quite directly to him. And I I realized as I was was prepping for this episode that, I mean, that is always my temptation when I'm reading uh, spiritually, is to think, okay, the next time that I am presenting this to a Sunday school or in a sermon or so on and so forth, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult discipline for me because that's been part of my life for so long uh, to read and to kind of shut that part of my reading mind off, so to speak. Uh, and I'll, I'll just confess I'm not very good at that. I'm always thinking about, you know, okay, if I'm reading the Gospel of Matthew, 
okay, the next time I preach Matthew, I got to remember that this is here so that when I'm preaching chapter seven, I can mention this in connection. Yeah, it's gotta, it's gotta be hard for people who deal with the Bible professionally. Oh, sure. Sure. I, you know, I, I can't say I do it. Prof- I, I'm, I'm not a professional Bible guy, but you know, I teach a, I teach a Sunday morning Bible study at my church or I co-teach a, a Sunday morning Bible study at my church. And that hit me like a punch in the gut, that particular statement, because I mean, I, I know that it's true. Like I'm, I'm reading the Bible by myself and I can feel myself slipping into, slipping into my office, slipping into my role as teacher. I can feel it buffering the experience. Um, and, uh, for him to, to call it out and name it, it was like, I could suddenly see it in myself because he'd named it. And I was like, Oh, that's there. That's what that is. Um, yeah, that was, that was actually kind of alarming when I got to that part. Well, he says doing this will reveal your inner poverty. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed this. I, re, I really appreciated this chapter. Had either of you read this book before? No, no, I hadn't. Um, maybe it it might be a good one to do sometime. Um, it's 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 really good. Well, the spark of this episode, as I said, was uh simply noticing that the. The, the days of these uh, these two heroes. Um, side note, um, a saint's day is there. A saint's feast day is uh, always on or around the day of their death. Correct. Um, which the old Latin phrase is uh, their dies natalis, uh, their birthday. So, um, not birth into this life, but birth into the life to come. Um, so if, uh, if tomorrow is the feast of Guthlock, it was the feast of his day, his, the feast of his birthday and yesterday, um, uh, and in fact is in, in Lutheran churches, uh, Bonhoeffer's, uh, feast day. The Episcopal church has him today. Cause I, I start my classes with the saint story and Bonhoeffer was today. Mm. Well, that was the accident that had me put them together, but still, um, what thoughts arose in you, uh, from having this very different pair close enough together to cross-pollinate? Um, where do you find them agreeing or talking about the same things, or at least being different in interesting and fruitful ways? Nathan? The common ground that I found fascinating is this notion of struggle. Uh, and I found it fascinating because these are two very different narratives of struggle, uh, and I've kind of already uh, teased both of these out because I, it, it, it's really just what kept hitting me over and over as I went from one text back to the other. Uh, in Bonhoeffer, I mean, what you've got is a continual meditation on the nature of human existence. Like I said, definitely some echoes of phenomenological philosophy here. Uh, it is a, a very careful attention uh, to the form of our everyday existence. 
And in that structure of existence, Bonhoeffer finds uh, tendencies against which we struggle if we are to receive the gifts of holiness that God would give. In Guthlock, it is a far more confrontational style of spiritual warfare. This is probably closer to what most people mean when they use that particular phrase, spiritual warfare. And even if you allegorize it, which I, I tend to do when I read medieval texts, uh, I think it's fascinating that, you know, uh, this is a model of the internal life, if you want to call it a model of the internal life, uh, that is really even overshooting Plato's not model of the spiritual life in Republic, where, you know, the, the fighting spirit might rebel against the reason, or the appetites might usurp the rightful place of the fighting spirit in the rulership of the soul. Uh, if this is an allegory, uh, it really is an allegory in which the sides are aware of each other, they boast to each other, uh, and in the case of the devils, they lie to the other party uh, as part of a stratagem. So, in both cases, I mean, you know, it is a story of struggle, uh, but it's two very different kinds of story of struggle, and I, I, I think that one benefit to putting these two next to each other is that when we tend to make things a little bit too quiet, I'll put it that way, uh, to make our the state of our souls you know, a little bit uh, too tidy, too systematic, I think Guthlock comes along and says, yeah, and then there's also demons that are coming over the hill with their nasty claws that are going to snatch your soul away. But then, I mean, when you're around people that I'm often around at a Pentecostal college who narrate the life of the Spirit exclusively in terms of, you know, what the devil or what the enemy wants to do to us, that that's the phrase that actually gets used more often. You know, the enemy doesn't want us to do this and the enemy wants that and so on and so forth. It's a reminder that sometimes uh, it's not a clearly defined battle between enemies, but it is... Uh, a different kind of a struggle. It's a moral struggle to order one's life in a certain way. So what I really appreciated about this this pairing uh, is that it's two very different visions of the life of the Spirit, each of which is true uh, in a way that we would do well not to neglect. So, uh, Michael, I, I went mile-high uh, aerial photography. Are there any particular passages you'd want to go to? Well, I mean, you. I was actually going to say what you said in a dumber way. I mean, my way would have been dumber uh, than yours. <laughs> but I, I, I do find it really interesting that Guthlock has so many demons and so many angels. And, and everything good is because an angel was defending him and everything evil is because a demon was assaulting him. And Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer you know, he talks about the, the, the your own inner poverty. So the, the things that are pushing you away from doing the right thing, the things, the things that are distracting you while you're trying to pray, that's you, man. That's not, uh, that's not a demon. That's, uh, that, that's all on you. And, you know, it's easy enough to blame that on it being 20th century instead of 9th century or whatever. But I, I very much like what you had to say about using them as uh, boundaries. Cool. I, one of the... And one of the things that, as I was reading them together, I found uh, you, you were talking about the contrast between uh, between their settings, Michael. Um, and you know, in many ways, you know, 1930s Germany is um, a much more spiritually dire place than 
you know, the Finn country in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, but in both of them, there is this intentional, at, at a certain point, they both choose to go to the place of danger. Um, and while we might often think of hermits as, um, as a kind of selfish spiritual choice, um, uh, Protestantism is not historically good at appreciating uh, the things that uh, the monastic and eremitical traditions saw as valuable. Um, but monks and hermits very much saw themselves as embracing the life that they chose um, for the good of their communities. They saw themselves as, as intercessors and as spiritual warriors fighting for fighting for the the people that they were among um you know so so Guthlock is off fighting the demons there so they don't come here <laughs> in 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 some way um Guthlock as George W Bush uh yeah that's that's exactly what I was like as, as the words were forming in my head I was like huh I've I've heard that before um, but yeah, that, that was, that was, that was, um, a, a very, a very medieval way, uh, to think about it. The monks, the monks are doing, are doing war in the spiritual realm to defend us. It's why, uh, the church is the third estate. Um, you know, the, the, the estate of the knights fight the physical foes, the state, uh, the estate of, of uh, the church of the prayers, um, they they fight our spiritual battles and the rest of us just farm to keep them alive <laughs> um yeah but but uh, similarly uh for for bonhoeffer um what you do in your solitude is ultimately for the sake of the community that you're part of um and i i, I found i found that really interesting uh once we were once I was seeing them side by side, it felt less and less accidental and um, and and weird. Um, yeah, well, that is all the all, all the time we have today for being alone with Guthlock and Bonhoeffer. So, what are we doing next week? It's time for our annual Christian Rock episode. So we're going to be talking about the 77's 1987 self-titled album. And um, they have another album that is sometimes called self-titled that is known among fans as Pray Naked. So if you're going to, if you're going to listen along, you're going to want the one from 1987 and not the one with the uh, naked Indian man on the cover of the album. And uh, Danny Anderson, a fan of the 77's, will be joining us for that episode. Huzzah! Well, dear listener, um, look forward to that. I know I am. Uh, I always learn a lot on your Christian rock albums, Michael, because uh, those are things that I never listened to back when they were current. Well, dear listeners, if you have any comments on uh, this week's episode, uh, any questions, things of that nature, feedback, uh, you can send them to our email, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on uh, our blog, on the show notes. Uh, christianhumanist.org you can also um, post them on our facebook or tweet them at us or whatever we just appreciate hearing from you
the Christian Humanist Radio Network is, uh, well, hosts a lot of podcasts, and the Christian Humanist Podcast is one of them. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Ellen Peterson is our intern. And I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore, leaving you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger.